So I'd like to ask uh, Stephen Hunt to come up. He's going to be delivering the message this morning. Um, Stephen kind of likes to uh, stay behind the scenes, so some of you may not know him really well. Plus, he's short, so um, you might not have noticed him. Plus, he looks like he belongs back in the back with the kids. Uh, we're excited to have him here. Stephen and his wife, Genevieve, uh, have been coming to the church for a few years now. We actually support their missionary work through uh, GAIN, which is part of CREW, which used to be Campus Crusade. So um, I think that Stephen has spent a lot of time speaking to, to college students and youngsters, so uh, trying to keep your attention should be easy compared to that this morning. I'm excited what God has to do this morning. Thanks, Scott. Stole all my self-deprecating jokes. Now I don't know how to intro myself. Well, like Scott said, my name is Stephen Hunt. Um, I don't know if you said my wife's name or not. Her name is Genevieve. And the reason I bring that up is because it's a name that a lot of Texans seem to struggle with. Maybe it's helpful if you just say it with me a couple times. Genevieve. Genevieve. Not Genevieve. Same name. American pronunciation versus French. And definitely not Genevieve, which she gets a lot. Genevieve. We've been around for two years. I think it's two years to the week, actually. Um, we moved to Dallas a little over two years ago, and I do believe, don't quote me on it, but I think it was two years to the week that we first came into Centennial. Um, and it's been a good place for our family. You know, um, we had gone through a year uh, where we were living in Virginia, raising support kind of all around the state, and uh, had felt homeless for a little while, church-wise, and this church has provided a good home for us. Um, we have a two-and-a-half-year-old named Theo. Uh, you're probably more likely to recognize Theo than you're likely to recognize me. For one thing, he's ten times cuter than I will ever be. And secondly, like Scott said, we are kind of, we're back row people. You know, I'm not your classic large personality. Um, Theo is the kid who, you know, if you meet him here at church, he's like the most reserved, stoic child in Collin County at the moment. If you try to give him a high five, your success rate's probably about 1%. Some of you have experienced that. Yeah, he's that kid. And then you go home and you observe him there, and it's like, it's like we lace his eggs in the morning with, I don't know. I don't want to say the wrong drug. Obviously, I didn't grow up in the 70s. Whatever drug, whatever drug, let's put it this way. Whatever drug causes a child to have a nonstop stream of songs coming out of his mouth all day, like from Jack and Jill to Hark the Herald Angels Sing to Earth, Wind, and Fire, whatever it may be, it's just nonstop, often blended together inserting different lyrics into a different tune. It's fun. Uh, I encourage you to, or I hope that you get to know that child someday. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Um, it's always a joy to come together and open the Word of God, uh, and it's truly an honor to, to get to do this with you today. We are continuing our Prophet and Gospel series, and today we're in Obadiah. Um, Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament, only 21 verses, which, just to set expectations in place, does not necessarily equal shortest sermon. Shortest preacher, as Scott pointed out, right? But that's why God created elevated stages. So I have an extra Bible up here that I don't need. That's okay. Um, hey, before we even read the text and before I pray, uh, I want to just give us a little bit of important context. So the first slide, you see a family tree there. In the, the very first verse of Obadiah, it says, Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Now, Edom... Oh, sorry. Go back to that family tree real quick. Yep. Edom is the same, is a different name for Esau. So way back to the beginning, Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and Sarah. He tells them to go. He gives them some promises, a lot of which have to do with their descendants. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but as you can see, Esau and Jacob are two of Abraham's descendants. They're actually twin brothers, the sons of Isaac and Rebekah. And these two brothers, 
they go throughout their lives um, striving with each other. They have a lot of drama that we're not going to get into today, um, but it, it starts back then, and then it continues on through the centuries as their descendants continue to butt heads, continue to fight, culminating in what we see here in Obadiah. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll see Edom, the nation of Edom, the Edomites referred to as Israel's brother. So all we need to know, Jacob and Esau, twin brothers, Jacob's descendants become the Israelites, Esau, or Edom's descendants, become the Edomites. And so the immediate context of Obadiah, before we read it, is, like I said, it culminates, this, this, this struggle through the centuries culminates with the nation of Judah, descended from Jacob, is attacked and destroyed by Babylon, while Edom, their brother and neighbor, sits idly by and even benefits from their downfall. And Obadiah is a vision about the judgment coming from God to the Edomites because of this event. So let's read the book. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. We skip a few verses down to eight. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray. Dear Lord, your word, your word is endlessly rich. Your word is eternal, and we praise you for that. You say that it is like fire and like a, a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. You say that it is a lamp that lights the steps for our feet. Lord, thank you that what you spoke through Obadiah has been preserved for us today. 
May you give us each ears to hear whatever it is you have for us. Will you join us, Father? Will you do a mighty work in our hearts and minds and help us to steward this text well? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so here's where we're going. A little context. Um, well, I already gave the context. Here's where we're going with the outline. Did the context. Word of judgment to Edom, word of warning to us, and a word of hope to all. So I want to keep the judgment to Edom short, not because it's not important, but because I think we can summarize it fairly quickly. So you look in verse 10. Why exactly is Edom being judged? They're being judged. It says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. You shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, dot, 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 you were like one of them. So Edom, what they're guilty of is failing to assist Israel, or Judah, their brother and neighbor, in the day of his need, in the day of his suffering. And it was suffering. You read the accounts in in Kings or in the book of Jeremiah or in Lamentations, and it's extreme suffering that the people of Jerusalem are going through. And the Edomites should have acted out of self-sacrificial love and care for their brothers and neighbors, but instead they acted out of prideful self-interest. Okay, they chose to align themselves with a worldly power, in this case a geopolitical one, Babylon, instead of with God and his people. And you can expand that out to just say they followed a worldly way of thinking and making decisions. For a while, it looked like they had made the right choice as they continued to live in their lofty dwellings with security. But then, as always, worldly saviors that you align yourself with betray you. Babylon proved to be a false savior for Edom, as we see the judgment announced in the book of Obadiah, and later on, decades later, their sin comes back on their own head, and God uses Babylon to destroy Edom. Great. Too bad for Edom, right? You know, (laughs) it's so easy. If you've been reading along, or even if you've just been listening to the sermons for the series, it's so easy with these books in particular to just see them as these historical artifacts about these events that took place in a faraway, strange land to a faraway, strange people, and just to think, yeah, like, you read this, and it's like, man, stinks for Edom, you know? Wish wish more books were only 21 verses, but, man, how does it end? Uh, The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Okay, yeah, not very specific, but sounds generally good. Okay, what's next? But God's word, of course, is eternal. And the same Holy Spirit that gave this vision to Obadiah asks us to to zoom out from that historical specificity, okay? Zoom out, spin the world around, launch it around the sun however many times it takes to get to our time and place, zoom in here this morning to our hearts and ask, why was this vision preserved? How might the Lord use it to reshape the way that we think and live today? And because this book is primarily a proclamation of judgment, the first thing we have to do is ask, are we in danger of similar judgment? At first glance, not to project, it doesn't seem like it, right? It doesn't seem like it. But when you boil it down, the bottom line sin for which Edom is found guilty before a good and holy God is this. Living, operating out of a prideful self-interest that causes them to not care for other people as they should. Specifically causes them to not care for their brothers, their neighbors who are suffering, who are weak, who have a need. A need that the Edomites clearly perceived. If they claimed before God they knew nothing about it, God's not having it. They perceived the need, they knew the need existed, but they did not act. Suddenly it seems like we very well could be in danger of similar judgment. 
And you know, I think when we're confronted with a text like Obadiah, especially framed in the way that I framed it for the purposes of this sermon, believe it or not, a book like Obadiah you could take in a lot of different ways because like I said, God's word is endlessly rich. I think we take it one of two places. Number one, we hear this, we shrug, and we think we don't need to do anything with it. The pride of our heart deceives us as it did for Edom, verse three, and we say in our heart, who will bring me down to the ground? So that's one. Number two, we want to be told exactly what we need to do to make sure we're doing enough. And in all likelihood, many of us vacillate between the two. So number one, I think one of the reasons that it can be easy to shrug this off and just to turn the page and think, I don't need to do anything with this text, is because you look at it, and like I said, at first glance, it doesn't feel like we're doing any of this. You know, you look at this and you say, how am I not loving my brother? I'm not gloating over anyone's disaster. I'm not rejoicing over anybody's ruin. I'm not entering city gates and looting anybody's wealth. When did I not demonstrate love for my neighbor? And that's fair, but in verse 11, again, God says, the Babylonians did great violence to your brother Jacob, and when you stood aloof from that, you were like one of them. And then we get verse 15. I think we have that on the slide. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Keep that verse in mind. Day of the Lord near upon all the nations. Fast forward several hundred years. Jesus, days before being crucified, tells this story. He gives us a picture of that day in Matthew 25. And it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Inherit the kingdom, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we do any of this? And he will say, When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then Jesus will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And they also will say, Lord, when? When did we not do any of this? When did we not care for our brother in this way? And he will say, When you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Do you notice that in this story, the goats seem surprised, even a little frustrated. They desired the blessing. They desired to inherit the blessing. Perhaps they had spent their lives calling him Lord, Lord. But they did not live lives that showed a heart that had been conformed to Jesus' heart for other people. So way back in Obadiah, which now I lost my place, a rookie mistake, The Edomites were found guilty for living lives marked by prideful self-interest that caused them not to love and serve others if it required any real self-sacrifice. And in their case, caring for Judah 
would have required a lot of self-sacrifice. And Matthew 25 tells us that a day is coming when all people, including each one of us, will be before Jesus' throne, and we will be judged likewise. And you know, we already established that we don't really know each other that well, and to be honest with you, as I was preparing this, I had... Struggle might be too strong. I had, I had a moment of doubt internally about whether to even go this direction. Because, eh, they don't know me, and, uh, you know, I don't, preaching works. No, forget it. If I'm misinterpreting the scripture, that's between me and the Lord. God give us ears to hear and eyes to see. He gives us a picture of how he's going to judge the world in Matthew 25, and he does it based on what we do with the opportunities that we are given to bless and care for others, specifically the poor and the weak. And I'm not going to get into it, this text immediately follows the parable of the talents, all about what you do with what is given to you. And there's a whole sermon there about how grace leads to faith, leads to works, and we're not going to have time for it. Preach it to yourself later. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Don't stop at verse 9 like we sometimes do. Continue on to verse 10. So that's one. We shrug it off. We think we don't need to do anything with us, and we have a strong warning that perhaps we do. Number two, we hear this, and we want to know Sounds good. Obviously, don't want to be a goat. Tell me, who is my brother? Exactly, as specific as you can be, who am I responsible to care for? Who am I responsible to care about? Who is my neighbor? Sound familiar? The story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, we're not going to turn there. It is familiar. You may know it. To summarize it, a lawyer asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what do you think? And he says, love God with all that I am and love my neighbor as myself. Jesus says, great, go do it. And the neighbor says, or the lawyer says, then who is my neighbor? Jesus tells this story. He says, a man falls into calamity, to use the Obadiah term. He's left for dead. Two people with the opportunity to help the man avoid him. They avoid him in his suffering. Maybe they felt sympathy for the guy's plight. But bottom line is it doesn't lead them to even the most basic action on his behalf. They stand aloof. A third person sees and enters in. He sacrifices time, money, two days worth of pay, by the way, convenience. He risks his own safety. He risks his health to care for the man. Jesus, meanwhile, in a classic Jesus fashion, never answers the question about who your neighbor is. He just says, go and do likewise. So uh, my question for you, is this all starting to feel a little burdensome? It, it should in some ways because the series is called Prophet and Gospel and if I'm doing my job, I've done Prophet and I haven't gotten to Gospel yet. It should feel a little burdensome. You know, Jesus, like I said, classic Jesus fashion, he has this tendency to enlarge the scope of everything. You know, and depending on your frame of mind in any given moment, sometimes it's irritating, right? Like, no longer do you just need to make sure you don't murder someone. If you're angry at someone, you're committing murder against them in your heart. Adultery is now expanded to lust. Other times, it's great. Salvation is no longer just to the Jews, it's to the whole world. But he has this tendency to enlarge the scope of everything. And in the Old Testament, we see Edom and Obadiah judged and condemned for failing to care for their brother and neighbor in his suffering. And in the New Testament, it's almost like Jesus is saying, everyone is our neighbor. 
But that's not what he's saying. Who is our neighbor? Who is the brother for whom we are responsible to love and serve? If you read the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is not opposed to the question. He's opposed to the heart behind the question that the lawyer had, but he's not opposed to the question of who is my neighbor. He doesn't answer it either. What does he say? He says, go, become a person who proves to be a neighbor. He leaves it open-ended like that because he knows, we know this, of course he knows it, that the answer is different for each of us. I mean, look around. We are different people, different backgrounds, different futures, different circumstances, different seasons of life, different forces have shaped us, different options are available to us. We think differently from one another. We interact with people differently from one another. We care and give love differently from one another. It's not who is our neighbor, tell us, Jesus. It's who is your neighbor. Because, you know, this is, I guess we're at the point in the sermon where you want to bring it into real life a bit. But in a lot of ways, the application here is to ask the question. Open your hands, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a while, and ask, how and for whom might God lead you to live more self-sacrificially? When you perceive a need, how might God ask you to die to yourself, whatever it looks like, so that others might gain life? And to be honest with you, I think we're far too prone to sell ourselves short in this regard and how God might use us. I'm going to throw out an extreme example. Qualifier going in. This is not going to apply to most of you. But I think it's worth hearing the extreme examples sometimes. So like Scott said, I work for an organization called GAIN. It's a humanitarian ministry. And, you know, I, I don't know if that does anything to you mentally. And you think, oh, of course, the humanitarian guy is talking about caring for the poor and suffering. So let me say real quick, I'm not a humanitarian. I work for a humanitarian ministry because I've been reshaped by the word of God, because I'm married to a wife who is much more natural humanitarian than me. Look, man, I don't enjoy roughing it. I work with people who love camping in the middle of Chad. I camped once in Glacier National Park. It was miserable. <laughs> My boss, who camped a lot, gave me bear spray ahead of time. And I kid you not, I asked him how liberally do I need to apply it, thinking <laughs> that bear spray was the same as bug spray. And you spray it on yourself, and it keeps the bears away. Okay? I'm, I'm type 1 diabetic. There's a lot of tough places in the world that I can't go because they don't have refrigeration for my insulin. I, I grew up in the church, but humanitarian needs were just out of sight and out of mind. My heart does not naturally break for these things. So when I say I work for humanitarian ministry, don't write the sermon off, is the point. As I was saying, I work for humanitarian ministry. We have a guy who started this week, who's, he's around 50. I know his wife's age and not his, which I won't say his wife's age, late 40s. Um, it's culturally inappropriate, right, to know the wife's age and not the man's age. Uh, he started with us this week. Several years ago, probably close to a decade ago, him and his wife, living in the DFW area, with kids who I think were in elementary school at the time, decided, we have too much. We don't need this size house. We don't need this level of possessions. We're going to downsize. We're going to start being more generous with our money. Fast forward a few years, the wife decides she's going to join staff with this humanitarian ministry. She took some time to raise her financial support and join this ministry. 
He kept his job, his normal, everyday job, good job. Fast forward another couple years, he decides that God is also calling him to join the ministry. He quits his job and spends close to a year raising support to join staff for this humanitarian ministry. Now, they have kids who are in high school and middle school at this point. And the reason I bring this up is because so many people... It's not, like I said, it's highly unlikely to apply to you or to be your story, but so many people would never even ask the question, never even start down that road for so many reasons. And I think that we are just, like I said, we're far too prone to sell ourselves short, and we are far too quick to not even ask the much smaller questions that could ever even lead to something like that. You know, and I don't know, I don't know how much to get into all this, you know, a few weeks ago, Dan preached on Micah, and Genevieve wanted to ask the question afterward, you know, the question basically being, is there more that I could do in response to this sermon, more that I could use my life for in this time? And I, as the, you know, loving, caring husband who wants her to flourish, kind of shut it down, because I'm nervous. She brought it up in our small group, and I kind of shut it down, because I'm like, oh, no, I don't want everyone to feel like, oh, we're not doing enough, oh, the burden is heavy. What is that? You know? Ask the question. Jesus is not opposed to the question. And as each of us asks the question, the answer is going to be different. And it might be something very small. It might eventually lead to something big. It might not be anything like that at all. And sometimes the answer is just going to be a flat-out no. You know, like we, just a personal example, a little over a year ago, um, we, uh, we have a niece and a nephew who were adopted from Liberia. And a little over a year ago, the adoption was almost finalized, and it turned out they had another little brother, a baby who had just been born, a half-brother. And in the world of adoption, it's best if you can keep the sibling group together as much as possible, especially when you're uprooting them from their culture. And the opportunity came to us to consider adopting this little boy in Liberia. There were a thousand reasons why that didn't make sense for us. It wasn't wise in this time of life. But we still asked the question. And the answer was no. I spent hours with the Lord one day, walking through the process with him. And it was beneficial. And it came back, no, it's not wise, it's not financially available. It's not financially viable. Sometimes the answer is going to be, no, that's not where I'm leading you. But the point is, are you even asking the questions in the first place of how God would have you die to yourself in ways that you aren't thinking about right now in order to bring life to others? And the way that God leads in these regards is rarely by asking us to take a giant leap of faith all at once. Like, you know this, if you've been down the road of faith long enough. He, it's usually a series of small steps of faith that leads to more and more intimacy with him and leads to him using you more and more. And this is where it gets good. Because what allows us to be willing to open our hands and ask the question, what allows us to take those steps in the first place, wrestle with God about it in the first place, is a realization, and more importantly, a remembrance that we're free. Amen. Right? Like, this is where faith gets fun. And we're free because it doesn't end at profit. It continues the gospel, and believe it or not, even the book of Obadiah, is, it is, the gospel is everywhere in this. Like we are free because every place that Edom failed to love and care for their brothers and neighbors, every place you and I fail to care for our brothers and neighbors, Jesus does not. He did not stand aloof from a suffering world, but he entered in. Jesus, though he had the highest dwelling, willingly came down. No one brought him down. He came down 
as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the savior who goes up the mountain, who drinks that cup of God's wrath that we should have drank, and in our place endures the greatest calamity, the greatest suffering of a, of a quality and kind that you and I cannot imagine from a spiritual standpoint. And by that, by that death and by his subsequent resurrection, he secures a kingdom. And for all of us who receive him as Lord, man, Obadiah is wrong for us. Our deeds will not return on our own head. Not because of what we have done or can ever do for him, but because of what he has already done for us. And the burden is lifted. Eternity is opened. And the end of that story for each of us, it, that informs the present. That informs how you live. And I said this is where faith gets fun, but let's be honest. It's also where faith gets very challenging because the fact of the matter is, I don't think it's just me. We want to identify, like the goats, with Jesus, the king, and his kingdom. But we don't always want to identify with Jesus, the suffering servant, that side of things. And that's where we make a choice. And it's, it's a choice we... You make, and oftentimes you make again and again and again, that the road of the cross, the road not of self-interest, but of self-sacrifice for the sake of others, that road's a difficult one, and we make a choice. Is it worth following him down that road? And if he is a resurrected Savior, then absolutely it is. He has gone before us, and our hope in him is secure. Like, that's why we're free. Not free to live self-indulgent lives that just entangle us in sin and distraction. That's not freedom. You know it free to walk with him and follow wherever he leads. Take a step, small, big, in between, whatever it may be, but to live a life that requires faith in him, you know, that requires sacrifice and requires a savior. Because in so doing, we gain far greater life and we bring life to a dying world. You know, Jesus, he is the true and greatest brother. He is the true and greatest neighbor. And so how do you and I become people who prove to be neighbors we walk with him. He says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It is. You walk with him. This is how the Christian life works. You know, not to, not to simplify things, but the, the Christian life is not mechanical, but there's a, there's, a, there's a certain way it works. John 15, you abide in Jesus and spiritual life flows through you. Galatians 6, you, you walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit comes out of you as opposed to the fruit, the death of the flesh, right? Romans 12, you offer yourself as a living sacrifice, and he transforms you from the inside out to know and understand his will. 2 Corinthians 3, behold his glory, and as you behold his glory, you are transformed from one degree of glory into the next. As we walk with him, as we center our lives on him, he reshapes our lives. We become people who think as he thinks, more and more. We see people and situations and the world more and more as he sees it. Our instinct over time becomes people who, when they encounter suffering, enter in and come alongside. And of course, there's so many stops and starts with this. We're going to get there. But bottom line is, as we walk with Jesus, we become people who, like Jesus, willingly die to themselves for the sake of others because of the joy set before us. And it's going to look different for each and every one of us but the pattern is the same. Walk with him. Abide in him. It's probably my favorite way of putting it biblically. Be willing to ask. And then step where he calls you to step, wrestling with him all along the way. 
I think that's the gospel in Obadiah. And I said stops and starts. You know, I, I want to I end with this um, because I, th- I think it's instructive. It might feel like a, a bit of a sharp turn, um, but I think it's instructive. You know, we already saw it, Matthew 25. The, the bottom line, hard reality is that at the end of time as we know it, there will be two groups of people. Obadiah, the book, in verse 21, it ends with this image of God's kingdom. It ends with gracious restoration for the people of God, but earned judgment for those who are not his people. And I said I want to start where we began. That's with Jacob and Esau. You know, in this, we have a picture of the end of their respective stories. Because with Jacob and Esau, I don't know if you know their story, but, man, they are, (laughs) one is not better than the other. Let's put it that way. Yes, the, the line through which God blesses the world through Christ is Jacob. Malachi has that tough verse about Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Bottom line is, you observe their lives, one was not better than the other. Each contributed heavily to the strife between them. Each caused suffering in others. Each suffered at the hands of others. But in the end, there's a crucial difference. And, you know, you look at the end of Jacob's life. Genesis 48, he's old, he's about to die. He gathers his sons, and his grandsons, and he blesses them. And here's what he says. He refers to God as the one who has been my shepherd all my life, who has redeemed me from all evil. In a life filled with peaks and valleys, he can look back over time and say, God has been my shepherd. And if you are God's child... I hope that gives you great encouragement and comfort because I know that sometimes sermons like this, they can feel discouraging in some ways, especially depending on where you are as you walk in. And, you know, I'm not going to apologize for what the Bible says, but the bottom line is, you know, whatever, sometimes we just need to be reminded that God is our shepherd, that we are his child, you know, like in all of our wandering and weariness and the weakness with which we are not yet done, we just need to hear God's spirit say to ours, you are my son, you are my daughter. And so if that's you this morning, whatever you're walking through, whatever you have walked through because of your own sin, because of circumstances outside of you, I want you to hear, God is your shepherd who has redeemed you, will redeem your life, all of it, for your ultimate good and his glory. He is at work. He will use you. Walk with him. Be willing to ask. And then there's Esau. And for those of you who do not know Jesus, you need to hear this. The final time Esau is mentioned in Scripture is Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, it warns us. It says, do not be sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. It says that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He desired the blessing He sought the blessing with tears, but he was rejected because he was unwilling to repent until it was too late. And man, Obadiah tells us, Matthew tells us, all over scripture tells us that a day is coming when Jesus will sit on his throne, he will separate the sheep from the goats, and the sheep will inherit a kingdom that has been prepared for them from the foundation of the world, a kingdom with no calamity, no distress, no suffering. But many people will not inherit that. And the Edomites, Esau's descendants, are judged and wiped out. Bad news, but also good news. Because you're not going to meet an Edomite today. 
They've been wiped out, but you will in heaven. And that's what I want you to hear. So in this kingdom, we are told it will have representatives from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That includes the Edomites. And let that remind us that until that day, there is always opportunity to repent. Opportunity to take your life, lay it down at the cross, and say, I'm tired of a life of prideful self-interest. I want to be reshaped by Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, I pray that that may happen today. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are so good to us. Um, We praise you that a day is coming when all of this will be restored. All things will be made new and good again. And all of the sadness and the madness that we endure here will will be undone. And uh, we just thank you, Lord, that until that day you are faithful to walk beside us, that you do shepherd us through all the peaks and valleys of life. And so we just come before you as a church and we lay ourselves down individually and corporately and we say, do what you will through us. Help us to wrestle with this text that we had today. Help us to know deep down that the burden is not heavy. The burden is light. Draw us closer to yourself. Help us to love you. Increase our love for you. Increase our faith and make us strong for whatever it is that you call us to. We pray all this in your name. Amen.